So this week, if you were here last week, um, this is our second week in a row of having this reading, a scripture read for us, because this week I have a voice, at least starting off with a voice. We'll see how it goes by the end. But, um, and so uh, it's also coincidental that now doing it for the second week in a row, this is now liturgically appropriate because it's actually epiphany rather than last week. Don't worry about it if you don't know what that means. So the baby, the Magi visiting the baby Jesus. All right. So our yearly Christmas pageants that we, that we know and love, right, unfortunately they render this story, this part of the story, rather uh, toothless, let's say. It loses its pop it's, uh, whenever it's retold the way that we've heard it before. But I've found, for me, that when I pay attention to some of the dynamics in the story, and and, and especially the politics in the story, it takes on this additional set of meanings. It gets down to some of the richness of the story. And so, uh, to my taste, it breathes new life into this story and its, its theology and its implications. And so, so let's review in case you happen to have put the uh, Christmas carols out of your mind for the next 10 months. <clears throat> Three magi trek a long distance following a star in the sky. They arrive at the nation of Israel and waltz up to its king because apparently you can just waltz up to the king in Israel. Who knew? And they are like, we're looking for the new king of the Jews. Have, uh, there, there was a star in the sky that told us to come here. Have you seen him? Um, Herod, the actual king of the Jews, uh, did not like this one bit, to say the least. And so deviously scheming, right? Herod went and asked them to come report back to himself. Come report back to me so I can go, you know, visit this king of the Jews. And so the Magi go and find Mary and Joseph and the little baby, and they come and they worship him. And they bring him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, as you're familiar with. But an angel warns them not to go back to Herod because he's not a very nice guy, so they go a different direction. But Herod is not so easily pacified, and... He doesn't like that, so he goes around uh, trying to kill, like, all the babies in the country because moderation is his strong suit, apparently. Um, And so the Holy Family flees as refugees to the land of Egypt until Herod dies and they can return home safely. The end. Isn't it a lovely story? So the first thing thing we want to pay attention to is that the birth stories are different in Matthew and in Luke. Okay, so um, backing up a step. So there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Four different stories of Jesus' life. Uh, in Matthew, Jesus just kind of appears out of nowhere and springs forth fully formed from the head of Zeus. So that's weird. And then in John, he's just way out in left field and starts with philosophy or something. So we have two stories that are Jesus' birth narratives. And so that's Matthew and Luke. And uh, one of the most fundamental things that most scholars want us to get from this, one of the kind of the core things they want us to see is that Matthew and Luke are telling different stories. They are telling these from different perspectives, and they have different goals. They want to get something different across from the other person. And so 
And, and, and contrary to our Christmas pageants, it actually does a disservice to the stories, to the authors, to just mash them together and just have this big, you know, mashed up thing rather than taking a look at each of them. So if, if you were here several weeks ago, um, the week before Christmas, you may happen to remember, if you were awake, that, um, that Luke's story, we looked at um, Mary's song in Luke's story, and it was about this great reversal about how, about how uh, for Luke, God works with the unexpected. And with the with the people with their you know their backs against the wall, those kicked to the curb, and and the first is the last, the last is the first. That was Luke's big point that he was trying to get across. But for Matthew, he's telling, as we said, a different story. He's trying to get something different across in how he's telling his story, because Matthew's birth story, when you dig down into it, is all about politics. It is all about politics. And so the spotlight swings to the international stage and portrays Jesus as this rival king who threatens the powers that be. And then the Magi's, when they come, they grant him political legitimacy. And so you see how that's a pretty different kind of what they're trying to get across from Matthew to Luke. So, well, now, don't misunderstand. When we're saying political, in the ancient world, you can't separate politics from um, theology and all this stuff. It's all just mashed together, right? So it's, it's this story about who Jesus is. And so Jesus, for Matthew, he is the new Moses. And so remember way back in the Hebrew Bible, uh, Old Testament, and or Charlton Heston movie, um, Moses went up Mount Sinai and came down with Ten Commandments, right? And so for Matthew, he's painting this picture of Jesus as the new Moses. And so Jesus isn't, isn't coming in and destroying the law. He's coming in and perfecting it. He's completing it. He's making it how it should be. And so if we're thinking of the new Moses, then we've got ourselves an Exodus story, do we not? And, and so that's what we're hit with today. We have this Exodus drama playing out in this different sort of setting. And so, of course, we have... Jesus playing Moses, as we said, and we, of course, need a pharaoh. And so, for pharaoh, we have our evil villain, King Herod. Now, in reality, <clears throat> King Herod was an incredibly complex dude. Incredibly complex. And so, he, he was famous in the ancient world. He oversaw this massive building project for, like absolutely transforming the infrastructure of the whole region. Like, it, it, he was huge, right? And these projects, of course, garnered him tons of fame and renown, right, and prestige. But, of course, when you have massive building projects, that means you have massive costs, meaning, and Herod's not going to pay him himself. I mean, come on, he's the king. So, that means you have massive taxes on the citizens. And the, and the people, the thing is, the people who were there, the bulk of them were right at subsistence level. They were right at barely farming enough for their family not to starve. And then Herod comes and slaps these huge taxes onto them. And so, to put it mildly, Many Jews in the area didn't really like Herod. Is that fair? Yeah. So, uh, so 
Herod's a complex guy, right? You've got, depending on if you are under him or if you're looking from afar, it's very different ways of seeing him. But, but, that being said, Herod was also famous in another way because he was obscenely obsessed with power and hyper-paranoid to boot, right? And so when he was trying to protect his own power, Herod was just absolutely brutal, right? He, he constantly stayed on guard against threats to his power. And so, I mean, just look at his track record. He, he ended up killing 300 of his palace servants, two of his sons and one of his wives, because he was like, I'm suspecting that you are plotting to steal my throne, and I, I don't know, maybe, maybe Herod was deeply insecure. I mean, it, after all, he was, you know, uh, he was serving as a king, but he didn't have any royal heritage, and his, he was an ethnic outsider, and his family only bar- just barely became Jews a generation ago. Or, and, uh, you know, also he was put into power by, you know, the Roman state, not the Jewish state. And so, uh, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's a Napoleon complex. I don't know, but... I'm just speculating now, but what we do know for sure is here we have our construction-happy, murderous, paranoid, power-hungry king filling in this role of Pharaoh in our new Exodus story we've got. And now we come to the main characters of our passage today, the Magi. And it's always been really weird to me of how familiar this word, right, the Magi are, and like nobody knows what it actually means, Um, but we use it all the time anyway, as if we do. Um, So a lot of times we've we've got in our head this image of, right, the kings, right, and that's, we get a lot of this from our carols and stuff, and so you have in your mind maybe, uh, you know, this royal, powerful person coming, right, but... So magi is from the same root as magic. So rather than maybe thinking of royalty, think of maybe a magician. Does that change the mental image you have, right? And so, that, um, and so we've, we've learned incorrectly from the carols that they're kings, they're not, and that there's three of them, we don't know that. And, uh, and wise men's a little better, kind of, but it doesn't really get at what's really going on here. See, see... Uh, Amagus, which is the singular of magi, right? Amagus was a particular royal uh, position in, in the Persian Empire of the time, and which meant that they have ties to these centers of power, and, and they're also part of this priestly class. And so they claimed to gain supernatural knowledge that they then helped the king out with, and they gained this supernatural knowledge through astronomy. That is looking at stars. Does that sound familiar from anywhere? And however, many kings harbored these suspicions against these magi because the kings realized, oh, if they give a negative prophecy toward me, that could be dangerous to my rule. So it's, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little wary. But still, they had this appeal. And so some of these rulers imported them wholesale and just into their courts. But, but still, people were really wary of them. Like, um, the, maybe the best example for thinking about it and wrapping our heads around what it's like is for a contemporary. Think a fortune teller, 
right? You've got the fortune teller. You've got, you know, super ambiguous and shifty. And it's like, oh, that's kind of sketchy. I don't know. And can't really trust them and all this kind of stuff. But on the other hand, there's something about it that, you know, when I get down on my luck, I could slap down $20 and go have my palm read, you know? You know? And it's this ambiguous thing, right? It's this... Oh, they're super sketchy, super, you know, just, but on the other hand, there's this appeal, there's this attraction, they're super ambiguous, and and this is what the Magi were like at that time, right? And so these Magi, these fortune tellers, if you will, they were following a star, and so a, a lot of people go to great lengths, actually, to try and uh, figure out how to make sure that this is, you know, naturalistically accurate and whatnot, and try and prove that it happened just as it was written. But uh, I, I don't particularly care because it misses the point of the thing, which is. <clears throat> so here's the thing: in, in Greco-Roman beliefs, and actually a lot of beliefs in the ancient world, you've got this belief that when you're born a star appears in the sky, right? And the brighter the star is, the, the more important that person is. And so these magi, these fortune tellers, they see that star in the sky and they say, oh, wow, that's a really bright star. That must mean a king is born. Something worth enough time, uh, enough to actually spend the energy and the time to go all the way away and go try and find who this is. And they made this long trek to find this new king. But note, note, isn't this exactly what Herod was afraid of? Right is because this right here is why. Remember why he slaughtered so many of his household. Right is to to eliminate any royal contenders to make sure his power is secure to make sure that he's going to stay king. Right, but but this title that the Magi give to Jesus, right, King of the Jews, the very thing that the Magi had just proven by the, you know the super bright new star that very thing is the title that Rome gave King Herod when he became king. The title King of the Jews. And it's given to him by members of a royal court affirming his kinghood. And so through Jesus' birth, Matthew does he not have this powerful theological, political message, right? Because Matthew shows us the arrival of this alternative king who will bring God's empire, not Herod's. And this king will be truly different than the other kings before because, right, you've got Herod, right, is perched in his gaudy palace and, and located in the center of power, right, in the big city and most important people around him. And then Jesus was born in a barn. He's from a poor family in the middle of Nowheresville, in the backwaters, in the sticks. And then, then, right, you've got Herod, and he's 
infamous for his brutality, right? And his paranoia about his status and his power. But Jesus instead, he teaches downward mobility. He teaches voluntarily taking on servanthood and nonviolent use of power. So, to recap, Matthew ends up telling us the story, right, of some sketchy fortune tellers coming out of nowhere and dropping a political bombshell on the king who uh, then freaks out and goes on a killing spree. And in this retelling of the story, of course, we've got, we've got uh, Jesus as Moses, and we've got Pharaoh as uh, Herod, and, and then just as in Exodus, it's this, coer- it's this showdown between coercive, dictatorial power, right, and, and God's loving power mediated in human form. And then even beyond that Exodus story, Matthew has Jesus installed as this new king, as displacing Pharaoh. So moral of the story is, Herod was right, was he not? Herod was right that Jesus did pose a grave threat to his empire, to his rule. However, it didn't look like what he was expecting. It didn't look like what he was expecting. Jesus didn't come and accommodate to the demands of empire because Empire demands total allegiance, but Jesus' Jesus' way refuses to give allegiance to anybody but God alone. And so this, this, this new Moses, this alternative king, this is who we celebrate in this season. Somebody countercultural, somebody not obsessed with the unceasing quest for power, somebody who calls us into better relationship with, with those above and below us on the social ladder. So, may you find this alternative king. May you, too, learn how to follow him in this alternative path. Even though all around us we see rulers, you know, trying for unbridled power. May you instead see a different way. May it be so.